Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans welcoming you back to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm looking forward to sharing with you Positive Atheism, Bale, Melier, Dolbach, Diderot, by Charles Develen. Develen looks at the religious, social, and political thought of the first four thinkers of the French Enlightenment, Pierre Bale, Jean Melier, Paul-Henri Thierry Dolbach, and Denis Diderot, to explicitly argue for atheism as a positive philosophy. He shows how atheism evolved considerably over the century that spans the works of these four authors, from the possibility of the virtuous atheist in the late 17th century, to a deeply rooted materialist philosophy with radical social and political consequences by the eve of the French Revolution. The metamorphosis of atheism from a purely negative phenomenon to one that became self-aware had profound consequences for establishing an ethics without God and the rise of republicanism as a political philosophy. Charles Develen is a senior lecturer in political and social thought at University of Kent's School of Politics and International Relations. His research interests lie in the interdisciplinary area of the history of political thought, specifically with 18th century political thought in the field of religion and politics, and the rise of atheism in France at this time. He joins me today to talk about his new book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. Welcome, Charles. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your background and how you came to work in your field. Right. So um, my name is Charles de Velen. I'm a senior lecturer in political and social thought at the University of Kent in the UK. And uh, I've moved to the UK in 2001. Um, I'm originally from from France, even though I I guess I I call myself French, but I really I grew up in Belgium. Um, so there's I already have a bit of a split identity there. But um, I went to study in the UK. I did my undergraduate, uh, masters, and uh, PhD degrees in the UK. And so um, that's kind of that's my background, and um, and I I worked on. Um, I worked on some of the authors I were going to discuss also during my PhD thesis. So two of them I wrote my PhD on, and that was kind of the, the beginning of, um, of my interest in those authors. Yeah, okay, because that's what I was going to ask you next, is how this particular book came about. Yeah, so it's, um, it's half of it is uh, coming from the thesis, roughly speaking, and the other half is research that I would have wanted to do during the thesis but didn't have the time to do. Uh, you know, I had a bit of a, an, an overly ambitious project um, when I first wrote my, um, my sort of PhD proposal. Uh, I wanted to have a look at, um, uh, at Millier and Dolbach that we're going to discuss, but also I wanted to have a look at uh, Feuerbach and Nietzsche. So I wanted to go into kind of uh, sort of German philosophy afterwards. And I, I quickly dropped that as I realized that it was going to be too much for the thesis. Um, so I continued my PhD on, on Millier and Dolbach that we'll discuss. But really at the end of it, um, I think like many, many PhD students, I was a little bit dissatisfied with, with what I had done. I had spent a lot of time on these authors 
I've thought a lot about them, but really I felt like there was something more to say. There was there was a, a bigger story to tell than just uh, looking at these authors and their political thoughts, which was my initial um, my my initial uh, point of interest uh, as I was uh, in a, in a politics department, political science. So I was really interested in their in their political philosophy, but it quickly quickly emerged that um, actually what, what was interesting about them wasn't so much uh, what I started uh, with, which is that you know they were self-avowed atheists. That's what I, I was working on. But really that they were part of a much larger movement and a movement that established atheism as a philosophy in its own right. And so after the thesis, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to use these two authors, um, Millie and Dolbeck, as a, as a platform for looking at atheism as um, as a kind of positive uh, philosophy. And I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss that because it's the title of the book, Positive Atheism. But um, yeah, that was that was the, the thinking. And then I, I enlarged, I had to go a little bit wider because there were other authors that were also discussing atheism as a positive um kind of philosophy so yeah that's that was the uh, the initial thought behind the um the book excellent so yeah let's start with this term what do you mean by positive atheism as a philosophy and why do you think that this approach is so necessary to the study of the history of atheism yeah so i i was really uh influenced in this matter by the thought of um of Isaiah Berlin. So Isaiah Berlin was um, a British philosopher. He came, I think, in initially from Estonia, I believe, um, one of the Baltic states. Um, and he um, he did all his studies he, in the in the UK. Uh, he fled, you know, the, the the communist revolution in the early twentieth century. And he really wanted to discuss quite a few things um, in in regards to uh, to liberty. Right, and that was his focus. Was to, in some of his essays, was to work on the notion of positive and negative liberty. And I was really influenced by this notion of positive and negative liberty when I came to work on atheism, because it struck me as something that was that was very kind of crucial for um, for the study of um, of atheism in the in the same way. Because so positive and negative liberty are not the kind of um, they're not notions that are moral notions so they're not about uh, actually you know having a good version of liberty or having a bad version of liberty positive and negative are only used in kind of linguistic terms so positive is uh, well let's start with negative actually it's easier if we think of negative liberty it's freedom from so usually freedom from interference um, so that's how Isaiah Berlin defines it. He actually has a preference for negative liberty personally, and he defends it as a superior form of liberty to positive liberty. But he also has a, still a little bit of a soft spot for positive liberty because positive liberty, instead of being freedom from, is freedom to, freedom to do something. And it has to do with self-mastery. And I think that was, that's what inspired me is that I wanted to look at atheism in the same sense because I felt that there was also just like with liberty, with atheism, there was a negative form of atheism, which I don't think is a bad one. Um, I think it's one that, that exists and that is well-documented and that most historians of atheism were talking about. So um, atheism as being um, 
a, a sort of uh, a, a negative concept in this sense as something that reacts against theism, right? It's in the it's in the word itself. It has an a from the Greek, the privative a. So it was very interesting that um, you know it it become it starts as a kind of negative concept. But I thought there was something more, right? That it was not just the negative concept, but it was also a positive one. That it was also about um, you know, bringing about a new philosophy uh, that is, sure, without without gods, but that has other things instead of gods. That has, you know, the role of matter, the role of nature. The uh, in some sense, we'll we'll talk about it a little bit later, I'm sure. But something like a utilitarian uh, ethics or things like that that were very um, very important for these early kind of atheists or. Uh, we'll see some of them are not actually atheists, but some of these authors from the 18th century, roughly speaking. Um, so so that was the notion of positive atheism for me, is that it was not just um, you know, atheism as being the lack of theism, but also atheism as being a novel way of doing philosophy based on some positive notions. Okay, so maybe next you could then explain why you felt the four authors you ended up choosing for your book uh, were the right ones for demonstrating your take on this notion of positive atheism. Yeah, so I, they basically all fit one one very basic criterion that I selected for the book, which is that they have to have a positive notion of atheism. So they have to describe atheism not only as the negation of gods or as a fight against religion, but they also have to have a sort of a positive notion of what atheism a is and can be. And importantly for me, and that's, that was a crucial difference with my PhD thesis, for example, is that I didn't think they had to be atheists, right? You don't have to be an atheist to describe atheism as a positive philosophy that is based on certain notions. You can even disagree with these notions. And certainly, uh, when we talk about Pierre Bayle, that's very much his perspective. At least that's the uh, the interpretation I defend of Pierre Bayle, that he's not an atheist himself, but he defends a positive notion of atheism. He thinks that other people are atheists, and he's read them, and he describes their thoughts, and he says... Well, actually, it's much more than the negation of God. It's much more than the rejection of, of religion. There's actually a positive philosophy behind these people. And then he says why he disagrees with them, right? So, um, so that's, uh, that's, an important, that's an important part of, um, of positive atheism. So they have to be positive atheists for, for me to write a, uh, about them in this book, in this particular book. So that was a, the chief criterion behind them. And also I find the, you know, those four authors are, are fascinating. Um, and there are, there are possibly others that, that could have entered the picture. There's, um, there's a kind of, in the 17th century, there's an anonymous tract that is very much a kind of uh, a positive atheism uh, tract that exists that I mention in, in the book, but I don't go into any, any real detail. And the reason why I don't talk about it is we don't know who the author is. And it, it, was, it was harder to paint a picture with that tract of what positive atheism was. And a lot of the arguments from that tract are used by the authors that I discussed. So it didn't add much, for example. Um, other authors, like um, a little bit later, the Marquis de Sade, could potentially also be 
um, but sort of positive atheist. But I didn't go into the Marquis de Sade because he kind of he extends into the French Revolution, and because I'm very attentive to context when I write, it brought me into a, a very different kind of uh, picture of positive atheism. Um, as you have to deal with the French Revolution and the consequences of the French Revolution. So very conveniently for me, my, my last author dies in 1789, but in January, not, not on the 14th of July when the Bastille is taken. So I can avoid the French Revolution largely in the book because I think that raises very important questions for, for what's coming next for atheism uh, when the French Revolution actually um, starts. Um, so I kind of conveniently stopped it there in 1789, just before the revolution. So final question before we get to your close examination of the first author. Unpack the ways that you see atheism, atheism as being radical. Yeah, so that's kind of the thesis of Jonathan Israel. So he's a, he's a historian who's written quite a lot about this. And I definitely um, use his work in that respect. I think atheism is very radical in the time period that we're talking about here, which for Israel is a little bit longer than my time period. It's, it comes from like the, the middle of the 17th century up until the French Revolution and later. Um, and that... That radicalism is basically an opposition between two strands of the Enlightenment. Uh, it's a very rough picture, and a lot of people have disagreed with Israel on this, but I think largely speaking, um, the picture is right. Um, so what we have is, on the one hand, we have a very kind of moderate Enlightenment. Uh, so these are people that we, you know your, your listeners would be quite familiar with. I, su- I suppose people like John Locke, for example, uh, kind of a very important figure of early liberalism. Uh, he's uh, a type of... Um, of philosopher from from the period that fits very well within this moderate enlightenment. So he writes on toleration, but um, he excludes atheists from toleration. So conveniently, toleration for him resembles uh, a kind of toleration of Protestants, right? Uh, He excludes Catholics as well from from the idea of toleration. Uh, He writes about political rights, but he doesn't dislike the monarchy. So... It's quite convenient. We can have political rights within a kind of um, parliamentary monarchy like, uh, like that of Britain in his day. So these are the moderates. And on the other hand, you have the radicals. And the radicals for Israel are the you know, people that come after Spinoza. And what Spinoza is, is doing is going much further than the moderates. So he's against monarchy altogether. He says that you know freedom is is very important. Toleration should be for everyone, not just for um, you know like-minded Protestants, but also include atheists and Jews and and all those people, um, the Catholics even into into the uh, act of toleration. So these things are uh, you know much more radical in in Jonathan uh, Israel's view. Uh, when it comes to, um, to to those thinkers. And Israel includes a lot of the thinkers that I'm talking about as the radicals as well. So Pierre Bayle, Jean Mélier, Dolbach and Dito are all kind of radical thinkers according to his classification. And so I follow this um, largely speaking. So this, these radical thinkers are are much more um, egalitarian as well. So they're they're in favor of, of equal rights as opposed to a kind of defense of the established orders of the time, right? In the 18th century, we don't really have an equal society. 
not everyone is considered to be equal. The nobility and the clergy have more uh, more weights than the rest of the people. So that's that's something that's accepted by the moderates and that's challenged by the radicals. And in many ways, the radicals have won. I mean, a lot of the ideals that the radicals defend are accepted by almost everyone today. And it doesn't matter now if you're on the right or on the left of the political spectrum, you kind of accept that you know everyone has the right to vote, for example. And that's a radical idea in the, in the mid-17th century up until the uh, late 18th century. So that's the rough picture of the, of the radicals, if you want. Okay. So your first author is Pierre Bale, whom you write had a complex life. So why is that? Yeah, he had a complex life because um, so he's the he's the earliest of uh, of the authors that I discuss. He was born in 1647 and died in 1706. So really, he dies right at the beginning of the 18th century, and he's born into um, a Huguenot family. So the Huguenots are Calvinists. They're uh, they're Protestants who live in France, and um, they're expelled from France during his lifetime. Uh, so when Louis the Fourteenth uh, revokes the kind of act of toleration, um, the uh, edit of, of Nantes. Um, and so that's already one thing for him is that he's very much in a minority religion within his own country, and he's forced to flee and to emigrate um, to the Netherlands where he spends the rest of his days. But there are also other aspects that make him really quite fascinating. When he's a student, he converts to Catholicism for a very brief period. And then he converts back to Calvinism when he realizes that, oh, actually, Catholicism isn't exactly what I thought it was. And it shows a kind of very strong intellectual honesty in the, in the thinker in that he was ready to be challenged when he saw something that, um, that convinced him that it was better than his previous view, he could change his mind. Now, unfortunately for him, this was not allowed at the time, especially converting back to Protestantism. So he was allowed to convert to Catholicism, but not back to Protestantism. And so he becomes a fugitive in his own country, even before he's expelled um, along with other Huguenots. Um, And he's uh, very much um, a, a complex figure because... Um, he's he's writing about religion, but he clearly has very unorthodox views himself. So there's a huge debate even to this day in people that that know him, that read him, that write about him, uh, uh, historians and, and other academics. Um, they disagree on exactly what what he thinks about religion. His thought is very complex. Um, the um, his his uh, critical and historical dictionary, which is his biggest uh, piece of work, is absolutely enormous. I think I, I I compare it to the King James Bible, and it's like three times the length of the King James Bible. Right, so it's it's huge. Um, it's uh, it's a it's a monumental piece of work, and that's not his only work. So he wrote tremendously. There's a lot of uh, ways to interpret his thought, and to this day, people disagree on whether he's an atheist or whether he's a kind of very unorthodox uh, Calvinist. And so I, I tend to err on the side of caution when, uh, when it comes to that. And, and I side with those who say that, um, that actually he's, he's more of an unorthodox Calvinist. Uh, I mean, for the, for the very basic reason that he never says that he's an atheist. He never says he doesn't believe in God. So even though a lot of his arguments resemble arguments of atheists, and he speaks relatively fondly of atheism in a positive manner. So he thinks it's its own philosophy. He thinks it's a naturalist philosophy. Um, but he attributes that to Spinoza. 
So he doesn't say that's my own, and he actually disagrees with Spinoza. So he gives us arguments against the type of of naturalism for Spinoza, and and his own version is um, uh, at least for those who agree with with this interpretation. His own version of, of religious thought is a fideist version. So he believes that these things are very complicated when it comes to the existence of God and then the, the importance of naturalism. And so the best that we can do is have faith. And for him, the ultimate refuge is faith. Uh, and so it's you know it's it confuses people and a lot of people say well you know that's that's very easy right when you have sensors when you have people that can um, that can actually you know try to put you in jail for having uh, uh, atheistic views then you will say well ultimately you know I have all these doubts but I still have faith and and that's a good argument I think like it's true it's true that he the consequences for atheism even in the tolerant Netherlands were quite harsh. And so uh, it was. It was more convenient to say, "Oh, I still have faith," but I think it's. He still. He has this intellectual honesty in him all the time, and so I. I argue that actually, we should take him at his word. And when he tells us that actually he doesn't like atheism because X, Y, and Z, we should actually accept that. Um, and so that's kind of why I, I call him such a complex thinker. Is that. We still don't know today what he thought, and there are still people writing uh, articles responding to one another, saying, "Oh, what, what about this? But what about that? Maybe we can think of him as an atheist because of X. Oh, no, he should be considered as a Calvinist because of Y." And so this is continuing to this day. <laughs> so you also credit Bale's approach to critical history as inspiring your own. So tell us what you learned from him here and how you put it to use. Yeah, so his his big work, the Critical and Historical Dictionary, is uh, is a piece of critical history. Uh, I think he he takes a practice which is, um, um, if, for lack of a better word, is a kind of hermeneutic practice. So it's a it's a, a practice of reading in great detail, but also of putting things in relation to one another, of seeing the how one book relates to an entire literature how um, it relates to the particular context. So when he writes about past authors in his dictionary, he always tries to have that approach of being critical, right? And and that approach existed. Um, it existed in, for example, Talmudic readings. So in the, uh, in the Jewish communities of Amsterdam, there were a lot of people who were doing that sort of reading, but they were doing it w- with regards to the Bible. Uh, and he generalizes this practice that is um, a kind of theological practice in the beginning to the notion of history. So he's the first one that does it just for history in general. And so that approach of, of trying to always find where people have, have made um, assumptions, of trying to find where people have made sort of have, have had their own prejudices um, influence their reading of things, um, that's that's kind of how he works. That's how he operates throughout this uh, this uh, monumental work, and that really kind of inspired me because it's um, it's a very valuable way of of doing history and of looking at past texts. Is that sometimes we have our own prejudices, right, and we try to impose them on others. And I think you know, I mean, I consider myself an atheist, for example. So I'm aware that that's my prejudice, right? That I. When I read a text, I have a tendency of reading atheistic arguments, uh, even though sometimes the author didn't mean it. And that's part of my argument for, for Bale himself, is that 
when I read Bell, of course, I don't know, I read a lot of atheism in there. But that's part of the issue, is that I'm reading my own prejudices. And so I try to be as generous to the author's claims and arguments as, as can be. And when you have someone like Bell who talks about faith so much, I think it's, it's important to, to take what he's saying at face value and to see that actually faith for him was very important. It wasn't a trivial question that ultimately he thought we cannot know what the nature of God is and that it was better to have faith than not to have faith. And so I think that argument is, is quite potent and is quite, quite important to take at face value. So yeah, that, that kind of approach to critical history, I think, is, um, is very valuable. Um, it's it's uh, unfortunate that he, he writes in such a very weird style. I think it's very difficult to read him today. Um, so it's, it doesn't translate very well, even into French, you know, when, because he, he wrote in French. It's, it's difficult to, to read. A lot of the points are very arcane, uh, very precise about things that you know, we don't really care about that much today. Some you know, like small theological disagreements that people may have had at the time. And, and so it's very difficult to follow some of his arguments sometimes. And he also has footnotes and he has footnotes for the footnotes. Right? So he's a very meticulous thinker who's always going back on his work and adding things. He's adding notes and then he's adding notes on the notes. And then, uh, you know, he doesn't really have a, a kind of modern editing um, process. So everything is still there. So you see his initial thoughts and then how he changes thoughts and then how he changes thoughts on his changed thoughts. And that, that just makes him a very complex and, and very deep thinker. And it really challenges you when you read him to try to interpret him in, uh, in, in a way that's as close as possible to what he tried to convey. Hmm. So next you move on to Jean Melier, who began as a Catholic priest and became the first avowed atheist of history. So tell us about him. Yeah, Jean Melier is a, is a fascinating character. He was uh, born a little bit later in 1664 and died in 1729. Uh, and he's completely unknown during his life, uh, other than his parishioners, because he's, uh, he's a Catholic priest. He's a, a curé, uh, so kind of a, a countryside priest in, um, in the eastern uh, region of France, in, in Champagne, really, or where we have the, those wonderful wines. Um, he's, uh, he's very close to kind of Protestant lands because this is quite close to the Netherlands. Um, so, uh, you know, there are speculations from, from historians of the period, you know, whether he was actually exposed to kind of Protestant preachers. I think it's, it's unlikely, but it's possible. Um, he's also quite close to the, um, to the academy in, in Sedan, which is where Bale taught for a while, actually, um, which is a Protestant academy that, you know, for, for very strange reasons, uh, kind of medieval reasons, I would say, um, the, the academy was conquered by France, but it had been part of the, of the empire, the Holy Roman Empire beforehand. So it had privileges. And when, when it was conquered, it kept its privileges. So even though France was very, um, very kind of harsh towards Protestants, uh, the academy of Sedan was maintained its privileges for a very long time um, under a kind of hostile Louis XIV so, you know, it's it, he's close to that academy. So there are some definitely there are some people in the region that kind of disagree with the with the mainstream Catholic preachings, and he's very close to that. But there's very little evidence that he accepts the Protestant critique. Uh, he writes at length 
and he doesn't really give us any any kind of evidence that actually he's turning into a Protestant. In fact, he tells us that he's an atheist, that that he considers himself to be an atheist. So he's fascinating for that reason alone, if, if only for, for that reason alone, for many other reasons as well, but in that he's the first person that tells us, yeah, I'm an atheist, and he leaves these memoirs and uh, when he dies, they're discovered by his parishioners. And it's not an accident because he, he wrote at least three, maybe four. Uh, we, we have three today. They're in the French National Library in Paris. Uh, three examples of these memoirs. So they're handwritten. So there are minor differences between the three. But basically, he copied them by hand. Um, so, you know, it's the time of the printing press. He didn't, but he didn't have access to a printing press. So, you know, these were expensive. And it was dangerous to to have these types of arguments. So he just, to make sure that at least one of them survives, he copies the uh, his memoirs twice. So there are three copies. And he leaves them for posterity. He leaves like a letter for his parishioners, uh, saying that it hopes it will it will help them to to get rid of their um, their prejudices and to um, to not fear the gods and or not fear a god because he says there is no god. So he's really trying to portray his version of um, of of atheism to. The people around him, but also more widely, because you can see that he's he's engaging with the thinkers of his time. So, um, you know, partly with Descartes, for example, one of the most famous thinkers, but also other Cartesian thinkers of the time. So, he had read he had read them when he was um, studying theology um, at the local academy, and and then he writes about their arguments and he writes against them. So he. He has very detailed arguments against the theologians of the time. So that's a kind of negative atheism to come back to what I was talking about in the in the beginning. And it's important, you know. It again, I don't make a moral judgment on it. Millier is largely a negative atheist thinker. But there are moments when the positive atheism comes out of his writings. And then he's trying he's trying to say, for example, uh, so if we don't have the Bible, how do we build a morality? And he says, well, you know, we all know, the, you know, what's good for the, for us. We know what we like. We know what we don't like. We have pleasures. We have pain. And he kind of builds uh, a morality around those. And so that's a very kind of proto-utilitarian version of morality that will be developed later by, by people like Jeremy Bentham, for example, uh, in a much more systematic way. But the, the premise is relatively similar in, in Midi's work, is that if we don't have a God, we can still have a positive philosophy because we can base it on other things, like on our, on our material existence, on our pleasures, on our desires, on our aversions, on our pains. And so he tries to do that. And, um, and that is, is very valuable. He also has a very kind of important... Uh, political critique, and so he's he's very radical. I think, out of all the thinkers, uh, he's definitely the most radical one. He he has this famous saying where he says that uh, he wishes for the for the last king to be hanged with the with the entrails of the last priest. You know, and then he says, well, you know, I don't quite agree with that, but someone said it, and you know, they weren't completely wrong. And so it's it's a kind of very revolutionary vision. So we have a kind of um, a vision coming from the countryside of France, from the periphery. It's not you know it's not uh, one important thinker in Paris. Uh, it's it's a very marginal thinker in the in in the Champagne region, but that is actually the most radical of them all. 
And that's that's fascinating. And uh, you know, maybe we can we can talk about it a little bit towards the end. But I'm still very interested in these kinds of peripheral um, peripheral thinkers. And, and I wrote a book on the on the yellow vest movement in France that happened a few years ago. And I think there's there's also an element of that is that often a lot of the radicalism can come from the periphery. Um, and so that was very true of of Medellin. Yeah, in fact, um, you have argued that we should understand Melier as a radical Republican thinker. And of course, that's uh, Republican with a small r, in part due to his really strong stance on the separation of church and state, which your your example illustrates there to the idea of hanging somebody, <laughs> hanging both the members of the church and uh, the members of the state separately, I guess. Uh, and he was also an early proponent of animal rights. So these are a lot of really uh, unusual, it seems to me, unusual ideas for this time period. So tell us a little bit more about those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the animal rights... Uh, point is um, it still fascinates me. I still, I still don't know whether um, you know he was one of the first, or I mean, I'm sure there are other people who who write about animals and and um, and what they feel, and and because he's a kind of proto utilitarian thinker, because he talks about pleasure and pain as a basis for morality, then obviously animals count because animals feel pleasure and pain, so we can include them in a version of morality. Uh, he almost embraces vegetarianism. Not quite. He says uh, he says he doesn't quite, you know, follow those who don't eat meat, but that he felt repulsion at killing a chicken. Um, so he tried to avoid eating meat, but he didn't completely avoid meat. So you know that kind of resonates with us today because these are these are things that are much more common now than in the 18th century. Um, and and he's he's fascinating for those reasons. He doesn't go into a lot of details when it comes to animal rights, but he does you know at least mention it, and it's um, it's interesting in it. In, in that respect, and I think on the uh, on the sort of Republican with a small R, yeah. Well, I mean, if um, if North American listeners are, are here, I mean, obviously, you know, the the Republican in the United States is uh, has acquired a, a different meaning today. Uh, you know, it's a political party, so often you know there's um, there's uh, a little bit of um, of confusion into what the term means. But we've just had the the death of Queen Elizabeth II here in the UK. And uh, republicanism is very small in this country, but it's still here. And and in Canada, you know, the 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 new king, King Charles the Third, is the is the head of um, the states, uh, right? So um, we have still monarchies in the world. We have a monarchy where I live, and we have uh, still republicans within those monarchies with the small R, a little bit like um, uh, like Millie. So people who argue that uh, the monarchy, the very existence of the monarchy is detrimental to human flourishing. Um, so you have plenty of political theorists that have written on this idea of republicanism. Uh, Philippe Petit, for example, is, a, is an excellent uh, thinker on, on this. And they argue that you know, it's because it's, um, it, it brings about a notion of liberty that is very different under a monarchy because you're, you're always inferior to someone who's considered to be just superior by nature to you. And that, that very existence of someone who's, um, who's superior to you is a problem for, for liberty um, because it makes you a little bit more su- subservient to, towards others. And, um, and so that, that is kind of the, the argument that you can find in people like, um, 
like Melier and to an extent in, in others like Dolbach and, and Didot, uh, definitely not in Bale. Bale is much more um, you know, um, calm in, in terms of his opposition to the monarchy, but there are anti-monarchical arguments also in Dolbach and Didot. But Melier is the most radical. He's the one that says, let's kill the king. Right, and that's that's a very radical statement. Um, so, so yeah, he's a Republican with a small R, and very much ahead of his time because the you know, the, the Republicans will have their way in France. But we're talking, you know, another good, uh, what is it, seventy years after his death. So he's several generations ahead, even in the French context. Okay. So in your next chapter, you look closely at Paul-Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. It sounds like he was an absolutely prolific author and had some, also some very progressive ideas indeed. So tell us about him. Yeah, Dolbach is uh, is not a very well known figure, but um, he was known in the um, in the eighteenth century. Uh, but also published a lot of his works anonymously. So he was probably the most daring and very prolific of these authors in that he wrote, um, he wrote a lot of uh, books that were published in the clandestine book markets. So a lot of books that had controversial arguments regarding the monarchy, regarding the church, were, had to be published um, secretly because the authors could be arrested. And so even some, some books that, um, that were not that radical, so I take the example in, uh, in my book of, of Elvisius, he's another author in uh, 1758, I think, or 48, I think. He, um, he published a book uh, called De l'Esprit on, on the spirit, where he actually, he's not an atheist, he doesn't have an atheist art, atheistic argument, but it's a kind of materialist argument. So it's kind of, yeah, we have spirit, but spirit is ultimately uh, rooted in matter. And that was too radical for the time. And he's barely saved from prison because he's friends with the king's mistress, right? So, so he has personal connections. So he avoids prison, but he has to apologize. He has to uh, uh, retract his argument. He has to issue a public apology for what he said. And he barely escapes prison. But other people were not as fortunate, people who didn't have those con- uh, those connections. So a lot of people who are involved in the clandestine book market, if they're caught, they then have very serious prison sentences, long, lifelong prison sentences for selling books that make these arguments. Some of them are condemned to the galleys. So, you know, that's, um, you know, rowing boats in the Mediterranean to fight the Turks. So these, these are the very serious kind of uh, punishments for these people. And, um, and so... Uh, some people are, are actually killed for, for making those arguments. So Vanini in the 17th century had been uh, executed in, uh, in Toulouse um, on, on Salin Square in, uh, in Toulouse. Uh, there's still a small plaque on the, on the square today. I was there this summer um, that commemorates his death. Uh, and he was uh, he was much more like of a of a kind of Spinozist thinker. So he agreed with Spinoza that God is nature, that God and nature are essentially the same thing, and that was too radical at the time. So he was executed for that. So yeah, the consequences are very quite kind of dire. And Dolbach publishes not under his name. So he he uses pseudonyms, but now you know with um, after he died, it was. Um, it was revealed exactly which works were his, and and he there were there was correspondence, so we kind of knew um, who, what he wrote and and what were his involvements. Uh, and from the seventeen fifties to the seventeen late seventeen seventies, 
he so for a period of about 25 years he just writes books after books after book and a lot of he begins with translations of english thinkers primarily who are deists so it's a bit more acceptable deists uh, kind of believe that god created the universe but then left it alone and that was a bit more acceptable it was still a little bit heretical in france but it was still it was a bit more acceptable than outright atheism so he begins by translating them but even when he translates them he i was talking about author's prejudices he actually inserts atheistic arguments. So he translates, but he translates it badly. And he adds atheistic arguments to these English deists. So he turns them a little bit more into atheists than actually what they were. So that's interesting in itself, right? And um, and he writes articles for the encyclopedia. We'll talk a bit more about it with Diderot. He writes about 400 articles, Dahlbeck, for, for his friend Diderot, for, uh, for the encyclopedia. So he's also uh, a naturalist thinker. He was trained in geology in uh, the University of Leiden in the in the Netherlands, um, so he's a he's a kind of scientist by 18th century standards. Um, you know, obviously it meant something quite different in those days, but um, for all intents and purposes, he's he reads all the kind of scientific publications that are published in, in German. He's originally from the the Palatinate region of of uh, Western Germany, very close to France. Um, and he reads them in, in English, he reads them in Swedish, and he translates them for the encyclopedia. So very kind of erudite, erudite person that is just, you can imagine that he, he spends his life producing these works. So um, he has a personal fortune, He's, um, he inherits money from his uncle, and, the, and an aristocratic title. So he's not born into the aristocracy, but he becomes an aristocrat. And, and he, um, he uses that wealth for knowledge. And that's his life work, basically. That's what he does his entire life, is write books and invite people over to, his, um, uh, to this, his house in Paris and to his house just outside Paris in the countryside. And they have philosophical discussions for hours and hours and hours. And then they write books together and then they edit each other's works and then they comment on each other's works. So it's a kind of like kind of private you know university if you if you want to think about it in those terms where everyone comes and debates each other's ideas and not just atheists right there are a lot of uh, even members of the clergy that are invited to these dinners and these members of the clergy are completely aware of who writes these books so he was publishing under pseudonyms but a lot of people around him knew that he was the author of these kinds of radical um, atheistic arguments and so just to conclude on that, it's, he, it, they culminate in this kind of system of nature that he publishes in 1770. And that becomes, for all intents and purposes, what people call the Bible of atheism. So it's a kind of book that synthesizes a lot of the atheistic arguments that had been made beforehand, uses the latest scientific naturalist knowledge that they have at the time, and tries to create an entire system from basically the creation of the universe to morality, that is based on natural philosophy. And, and that is very much kind of the epitome of positive atheism, if you want, is the, is the system of nature, because it systematizes this philosophy that we can already find a little bit in Bale, that we can already find a little bit in Millier, but it becomes entirely systematic under Dolbach. And now we have this kind of Bible of atheism, this, this positive atheism that is being put together in one single book where you can actually find most of the up-to-date arguments at the time um, by other atheists or people who were sympathetic to atheism. Okay, so let's turn now to your fourth author, Denis Diderot. 
As you point out, he's the best known among your four authors, but give us a brief biography anyway. Yeah, so Dido is actually a little bit older than Dolbach, so I don't follow kind of a chrono- chronological order, um, not fully. I mean, they, they are friends, so they know each other. Uh, Dido comments a lot on Dolbach's work. Um, he sometimes complains about it, actually, in his correspondence. And so when when he's writing to other people, he's saying, oh, I still had to correct like the, the Baron's work. So he's, he went to his house in the countryside, spent uh, a couple of weeks there, and every morning he was doing corrections for his work, for the Baron's work. Um, but Diderot is, uh, was born in 1713, uh, died in 1784, so again, before the French Revolution. He's from Burgundy, so in the in the eastern part of France, closer to the Swiss border this time. And um, he is a genius. I mean, his work is just absolutely fascinating. Uh, he writes so clearly. He has an excellent style. Dolbach is it's a little bit heavy. It's very systematic. It's it's kind of it's not very prosaic, right? Um, and, you know, people like, for example, Karl Marx said that his favorite author was Diderot. So you see the kind of influence that, that Diderot had even much later in the 19th century. People were still reading him. Um, he writes novels. He writes plays. He writes science fiction. It's, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. The, his, the, the, just the wealth of his work is, is breathtaking. He's also the editor for over 20 years of the Encyclopedia, which is an attempt to systematize human knowledge and put it all, not in just one book, because there, there's too much human knowledge, even in the 18th century, um, but in a series of books. And so he edits this encyclopedia. He writes thousands of articles for it. Um, he's definitely the, the most prolific contributor to the, to the project. Hundreds of other people contribute, but he's the one who edits everything. He reads everything. He corrects everything. And, and is just breathtaking how much he he managed to do during his his life and so Diderot is um is is a very famous still today it's a a famous author I mean I read him in school in in high school we read Diderot it was one of the required readings in in French classes French literature um we read uh Jacques uh, the Fatalist which is an absolutely fantastic novel um so you know it's he's kind of a very well-known thinker and uh on his on his um on his atheism, I mean, we can maybe come back to it, but I have a very un- unorthodox take on Diderot's atheism. I kind of agree- disagree with most people who write on Diderot on this. Um, you know, so maybe I'm wrong, but <laughs> maybe it's likely. If you disagree with everyone, it's likely that you're wrong. But maybe I'm maybe also I'm right, and I've seen something that that other people haven't quite seen. Um, so I think on on that, he's he's also. He's also a very subtle thinker, and he's not as clearly atheistic as um, as I sometimes uh, he's made out to be in the literature. And um, uh, I just reviewed recently a, a new biography of Dito by uh, Andrew Curran that that came out, which is a fantastic biography. I mean, I really recommend that um, that people read it. Um, really enjoyed it. But even then, I have some disagreements with with the author with with Andy on this because I think he's. Um, He's a, he's a little bit too assuming of Diderot's atheism. I think Diderot's atheism is more complex. Um, not saying he's not an atheist, but I think he's an atheist and something else as well. 
Right, because you actually argue that he's best described as an agnostic, as well as a materialist, a political thinker, uh, and that he even developed an early labor theory of value. So this also sounds pretty radical for the 1700s. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the labor theory of value is a theory of, uh, of Karl Marx. It's also the, the theory of, of Ricardo and Adam Smith. So Adam Smith was living at the same time. In the, he wrote his Wealth of Nation in the 1770s. He actually visited Paris during that time. So, you know, uh, there's no, not a lot of evidence that Smith and, um, and Diderot met, but they certainly agreed on this kind of um, this idea that the, the wealth of nations comes from labor. Right, that's kind of the conclusion of, of Adam Smith, and then Marx actually agrees with that, turns it on its head, but agrees with the basic uh, definition of the labor theory of value. And and Diderot, Diderot also has this kind of labor theory of value. He's also an anti-colonial thinker, so he contributes to another thinker, Renal, Abbe Renal, who writes a, a history of the two Indies, and it's a very very strong critique of colonialism and. And we know now, because of research that scholars have done, that actually a lot of the most radical arguments in that book were actually written by Diderot. So they, Diderot commented on, on the early works and suggested things. And those things end up to be the kind of most anti-colonial uh, arguments in the book. So very fascinating thinker, very ahead of his time. Um, you know, the French Revolution hasn't happened yet. The Haitian Revolution is about to happen in, a, in you know, the, in, in the middle of the French Revolution. And so these kinds of things that are about to erupt into the stage of world history, the French and the Haitian revolutions, are kind of already discussed by Diderot because he kind of, he had the genius to see them coming. There's no better way of saying that. He was a, almost a prophet, which is uh, ironic for, for someone who, who is uh, considered to be an atheist, to be a kind of atheist prophet. But uh, I think that's kind of, he, he was, he was so, so much of a genius that he saw what the real problems of his society were. Um, and, and even before they really uh, were clear to everyone else. So, so Diderot is fascinating. I don't think I quite say he's an agnostic. Um, my argument is is a little bit a little bit more complicated than that. Um, I accept that I think Diderot considered himself to be an atheist at some point, uh, probably around 1749, because he writes a book. He writes a, yeah, a book at, the, at that time, uh, a letter on the blind, where he has very atheistic arguments. And even though he writes in letters that he was, he's not quite an atheist, so he writes to Voltaire and he says, oh, I'm not quite an atheist in that year, 1749, I think he was quite convinced by the arguments. He's just trying to be nice to Voltaire because he knows that Voltaire isn't the biggest fan of atheism. Um, so I think at that time, he kind of embraces atheism. But then he becomes a little bit dissatisfied with it. And I think partly... Uh, it's difficult to tell for with with exact uh, certitude, but I think partly it was when he when he was helping his friend Dolbach with the system of nature, reviewing it and giving him comments. I think he felt it was missing something. I think um, he felt that there were still elements that weren't really quite right in this whole systematic vision that his friend had proposed. He largely agrees with it, but it was a bit too dry. He wanted something a little bit more complex. He wanted to, something a little bit more, I, I want to say, dialectical. So if we had theism and then we have atheism, then we need to overcome those two. Right? They need to become something else together. And this is where I, I argue that he's a kind of, 
I, I want to coin this term, it's a very ugly term, but it, it kind of encap- encapsulates what I want to say, which is that he's a metatheist, so that he's beyond theism, but also beyond atheism, that he was a theist, he believed in God early on in his life, then he became disillusioned with that, became an atheist, and then he became disillusioned with that. And one of the things that, that he writes about that I use to, to um, defend my thesis is his conception of a, of a kind of helozoist hypothesis. So the helozoist is, uh, it comes from ancient Greek, um, so it was already written about a long time ago. But it's the idea that maybe the universe is a kind of big animal. Uh, so just like we have bacteria in our body, we human beings might just be bacteria living in the big universe, and that the universe itself might be living. And, and Diderot says, so it's a very naturalist kind of vision, because it's still about life. It's about the universe being alive. But it's also um, a kind of fascinating tale, because it's, it shows that he's not completely against a kind of vision of, of a type of deity, but it's a very unorthodox deity, right? If, if the universe is kind of a god, like kind of an animal, it's alive, but it will also die. So it's a kind of god that can die. It's a kind of animal that is, uh, that is the entire universe. And he doesn't quite say that he agrees with this ver- version, but he says, I, I can't quite find a way to refute it. I can't quite find a good argument against the, that hypothesis. So he's always open, basically. I think that's, that's one thing that is definitely true about Diesel, is that he's always open to hearing new arguments. And I think he wasn't quite convinced by the atheistic arguments of his friend Dolbach, and he wants to go beyond them. And so that's what I mean by the meta-atheist, is that he wants to go beyond atheism. Atheism is not enough for him, um, and he wants, he wants more. He wants something that, that will give him uh, a kind of a more satisfying answer to important questions in his life and in politics and in, in social matters, and atheism just doesn't quite provide those for him. So you find this dialectical pattern uh, to the development of atheistic thought, as you mentioned, through negative beginnings, through positivism, and finally to this notion of metatheism. Um, don't you, would you say it's correct to say that you find that pattern beyond Diderot as well? Yeah, most definitely. So I think... Um... Yeah, in the in the nineteenth century, as we have a kind of romantic um, reaction to the Enlightenment, uh, we find that a lot of people um, start also moving beyond atheism. Um, so I'm thinking of um, you know people like even Marx have written on this. I think uh, I think Marx was also dissatisfied with atheism, and Marx's answer is that since atheism is not enough, so he kind of embraces atheism, then moves past it as well. And his answer is communism, right? He thinks that communism is the ideal that we should strive for. Um, but you can also think of someone like like Nietzsche that has um, is also at times very atheistic, very kind of critical of the gods, and tries to definitely has a kind of positive um, uh, philosophy of, of his own. Uh, but he's also critical of atheists. So he doesn't write kindly at all about atheists of his day. So he also wants to move past atheism. So we have two very different thinkers here in the 19th century, Marx and Nietzsche, uh, almost at opposite ends of the political spectrum, but both have also this desire to move past atheism. Atheism is too dry for them. It's not enough. We need something more. We need to replace the old faith with new ideals, 
right? And for one, it's communism, and for the other one, it's kind of this this notion of the ubermensch, of of humanity going past itself. And so these two are kind of philosophers of the of the century after those that I'm discussing, that um, that also go try to go beyond this notion of. Uh, of atheism, and I think that's true of some contemporary thinkers as well. Um, so you know that's um, that's it's not just a 19th century thing. I think there are a lot of a lot of interesting philosophers today that have reflected on on this as well. So I found it really interesting how throughout this history of philosophies of atheism, the ideas are so often intimately intertwined with politics, and it's certainly true today as well, especially on this uh, over here on this side of the pond, uh, especially in the United States, that atheism seems always to be a political topic as much as one of personal beliefs. So that leads me to wonder how or if you see the conversation started by these four authors continuing into today. Is there anyone in particular? in particular in public discourse today who you would say is developing directly on their ideas or how might we see these ideas being further developed now? Yeah, and I, I think uh, that's why I was drawn into these authors in the first place is that I was interested in the new atheism. So if you can remember back to the early 2000s, uh, around 2004, I think, there were uh, a group of atheist thinkers that uh, started writing books about atheism. And then there were a lot of books written in the, uh, to respond to those books. So people like Richard Dawkins, for example, um, Sam Harris, um, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett. They were the kind of four horsemen of the atheistic apocalypse. And, and it's around that time that I, um, that I became interested in, in, in atheism uh, more widely, and I started reading them. And I was very dissatisfied with their work and so I was trying to go back to the historical roots of atheism. Um, and I think like the, these authors are kind of like, they're the modern you know, new atheists, but their vision is very much negative. So there's very little positive atheism in what they write, with the notable exception of Daniel Dennett. I think he's, um, he's actually, uh, out of the four authors, he's, he's the one that has a very clear path towards a positive conception of atheism. But even then, that leaves us hanging in terms of the, the kind of meta-atheism, the, the last stage of the dialectic that I propose um, in, in my reading of atheism. But there are definitely authors that fit into that. Um, so Richard Rorty um, is, is one of those who was writing before the, before the early 2000s, actually. Um, clearly an atheist himself, but also clearly interested in, uh, in notions of um, having a kind of dialogue with religious people and trying to find areas where they can agree. Uh, William Connolly, who's also a p- political theorist, uh, has also written on this. He prefers to call himself a non-theist rather than an atheist, but he's one that also has tried to move past the notion of atheism. So incorporate it, but also move past it. And so I think these thinkers in the in the 20th and 21st century uh, Rorty and um, and Connolly in particular are are very interesting and and they talk about politics right they they're political theorists they're people who are concerned about the social and political problems of today and they see that actually uh, religion still plays an important part today and in fact has has made a return and I think that was part of the reason why the new atheists began writing their books is that it was after nine eleven religion had come back. There had been you know, religious terrorism, and it was impacting the international uh, sphere. There was a war on terror, 
you know, all of these things were coming back to the forefront of everyday politics, and uh, and still very much so in the in the United States today. Um, uh, religion is a very important part of how Americans live their lives, and how you position yourselves regarding religion has important political consequences. Um, so, so yeah, I think these these issues are still very important today. Um, where I come from in France, I mean, it's a it's a very secular state. But I've also written on on secularism, and I think France has a very kind of negative notion of secularism, and and doesn't have the type of generosity that people like Rorty and Connolly are suggesting in their political theory. So I think we can also we can also think about um, how to be a little bit more generous towards the views of others, especially when they disagree with us, right? Especially when you're an atheist, but you're confronted with the views of religious people, not to not just to dismiss them outright, but to try to understand what are the deep um, connections that you can have with those people. Uh, and I think one of the things we didn't really talk much about it, but it's it's definitely in the book, is the importance of toleration in early atheism. And toleration was essential because to all the authors that I discuss, because for them, it was very important that people's deeply held views, including their religious views, be tolerated, that everyone should be allowed to have their own philosophical understanding of what a good life is and that they should be able to pursue it, whether they're religious or atheist or somewhere in between, right? And so that, that was an important conception in the, in the 18th century and the authors I discussed. And I think it's still a value that's worth defending today. Uh, toleration is an important value of modern liberal democratic societies and for good reasons. And it needs to be defended against its enemies. And there are many enemies, people who think that there is a right way to think about these things and that you can impose it on others. And some of them are atheists. Right? Some of them think that atheism kind of should be imposed on others. And I disagree with those people as well. I think toleration is better than trying to impose your views on others. Agreed. Well, Charles, I've taken up a lot of your time, but in the few minutes we have left, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Yes, absolutely. So I've... Um, I've been working on very different things, actually. I mean, there is a common thread, but um, I've been working on French politics quite a bit. So I, I wrote a book about the Yellow Vests called uh, The Gilets Jaunes and the New Social Contract that came out last year. And um, since then, I've been working on a book on, on Macron, uh, Macron's politics and ideology. And um, that's called the Macron regime, and it's coming out in November. So look out for that one uh, coming out soon. And there is a common thread because I think that's part of, um, I'm still doing critical history. I'm still trying to do a kind of critical history of the present and of events as they're unfolding. I think I'm still trying to, to keep that, um, that kind of idea of toleration going and to understand people's ideas and ideologies and, and preferences and how they defend their own interests whether it's Macron or whether it's the, the yellow vests. So I think this thing has, has kept kept me going. Uh, but yeah, very different subject than 18th century atheism. <laughs> well, it sounds like a great project. And I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed your book. I absolutely love the, um, the history of intellectual thinking and so forth. So I was really glad to have the chance to chat with you in person about it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to discuss these ideas with you. All right. Well, maybe we will talk to you again. Thank you so much. I hope Bye. so. <laughs> Bye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. 
Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. Charles Devalen about his new book, Positive Atheism, Bale, Melier, Dolbach, Diderot, published by Edinburgh University Press. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review in your podcast player, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like New Books Network page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books. Thank you.